Real nice watch. Is it plastic? It's a uh, bioceramic, <laughs> as they call it. I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Trade Planning, a podcast that tries to make sense of international trade, business, and expat life without putting you to sleep. On today's episode, we'll recap the coming China debt tsunami. And a little later, we'll be speaking with Ian Golden of Oxford University about why this is not the end of globalization. Sorry, Michelle. How we can make the world work together better. And he also introduces us to the idea of a vegan kebab. I'm not sure that's a thing, but uh, we'll go with it. And as always, we'll have the usual listener feedback and news roundup. Well, everybody, welcome to episode 35. The atomic number of bromine. Hey, bromine! A naturally occurring liquid element mainly used as a flame retardant, not just a raw retardant. It has a brownish-red color with bleach-like odor, and it dissolves in water, which can probably describe most people from my home of Staten, Italy. <laughs> Rewrite. <laughs> the name also comes from the Greek bromos, meaning stench. Neither of those things are related, but I just thought it's important to, to mention that. Before anybody from Staten, Italy responds, <laughs> you know it's true. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. How have you been, Rob, last two weeks? <laughs> hey, I've been doing good. I was introduced by Michelle to the concept of a hot girl summer, and, okay. uh, which apparently is non, non-gendered, so I could have one too. So I'm having it, and maybe even too hot. Maybe there's a climate element to that. But also, I attempted to magnify that by putting many more O's in the hot part of hot girl and ended up with a hoot girl summer. I think they have those in Texas. So this is now represented by the pictogram for many owls on WhatsApp. As much as I'd like to have a hot girl summer, I'm just hot at the moment. Uh, on the plus side, Geneva has developed a new superpower, and that is a walking sauna wherever you are <laughs> at any point. So I'm literally sweating out the body weight that I gained uh, after my accident. It, it's all gone now. <laughs> and, and Michelle, what is a hoot girl summer? A hoot girl summer is basically a summer where you can do whatever you want because you're hot, or in this case, hoot. You can have fun. You can be crazy, go crazy, not too much because we don't want to get heat exhaustion. And I guess Jennifer Affleck is having one of those. It's Benifer. Just get it right. It's Benifer 2.0. They're having a good summer. Again, they're married. They got married in a drive-thru. What a great story. And I think it's great. I think we'll come full circle now. I didn't really care. You're the one who put this in the news segment, so I'm not really sure how to feel about this. Jenny is not from my block, but she's from my city. I really um, enjoyed her in The Maiden in Manhattan. I liked her in Selena. We talked to, actually, that's a good callback to last episode because <laughs> she was in Selena. We talked about Selena. Did we? Yeah. Remember, it was, she was in, what is Selena? It was the atomic number of something which sounded like <laughs> Selena. It was the atomic number of selenium, which reminds me of Selena, and all I sort of function in is callbacks to pop culture. Oh, yeah. I enjoyed her in High School Musical. Speaking of pop culture, can we make a new song, an updated one, called Baby, It's Hot Outside? (laughs) (laughs) It's hot outside. In any case, my last two weeks went well. Thanks for asking, Rob. How how are you doing? Have you ever been to Montenegro? (laughs) Funnily enough, this is my umpteenth time visiting there. Actually, this is my first vacation since my skiing accident. And I got through mostly unscathed. There are a lot of naps, which I guess is typical of the Balkans. (laughs) (laughs) Being as I am uh, Albanian. But it went well. So I've survived. I bumped it up to about two or three April spritzes a day, at least for this two-week period. When I came back, I completely crashed. And it wouldn't be a hot girl summer without EasyJet canceling your return flight, which they did 
And how much clarinet can you stand? Because I know that it's it's pretty heavy on the clarinet. I know the Good Girl Summer I, in in Montenegro. I know they're not a sponsor, but all I have to say is those these new Apple AirPods are magical because <laughs> they really block out like twenty percent of of the sound of the clarinet, which is just enough to make it through three hours of an Albanian wedding. <laughs> <laughs> After which, you I passed out, literally. <laughs> all right, everybody, that's your cue to go to an Albanian wedding. With your earpods. Actually, speaking of Hot Girl Summer, I forgot to mention this whole time that I finally got my moon swatch. Is this the one where people stabbed each other? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I talked about like two months ago. (laughs) And I didn't have to stab anybody. You said you you would get one. Not only that, I didn't even wait in line. I wasn't even in the store. A friend of mine, they had three available and he's like, do you want one? You know a guy. Yeah, I know. You literally know. This is a shout out to Habib, who's probably listening. (laughs) For listeners, it's plastic, even though they say bioceramic. It's cool. And you did not stab a kid to get it. did not need to stab anybody. There was nobody who was hurt in the making of this purchase. So I feel happy about that. I think it's absurd. I think your watch is absolutely absurd. I've talked to a few people and they ripped me apart because you made fun of me for saying, it's a watch for summer. I can only wear in the summer. (laughs) Yeah, they're right. And they said, how's your summer watch going? As if I was supposed to know the reference to my own podcast. So thank you for that. You're like, what the hell are you talking about? Well then, we'll get right into this episode's What Went Wrong This Week segment. First up is something that is not near and dear to our heart that was last week, but it's still a relevant story nonetheless, and that is China and debt, a love story. So we talked about China's real estate sector a few months ago, specifically the warning signs that seem to have gone a bit worse. So defaults by smaller Chinese banks have led to fears that far larger set of defaults could be on the horizon. People have blamed zero COVID policies, inflation, and sort of slower growth as a nice cocktail of disaster. And this means that it's a very real possibility. And in many cases, much different from 2008, when China was able to grow out of the crisis. Lenders like Evergrande, which have since defaulted on over 300 billion in loans, and also no relation to the ship, although might have the same outcome. Uh, (laughs) Homeowners have said that they will stop paying their mortgages while there have been riots in Henan province. And I recently saw, as we're recording this, tanks were rolling into the province to sort of quell protests there. So Chinese authorities, as I said, not just via tanks, they have stepped in to put their fingers in the spigot, so to speak. But my question is, have we seen this story play out before, Rob? Well, sure we have. Did did you own a house in 2000, whatever it was, when during the financial crisis, 2007, 8, 9? I did. So we did watch what can happen when an overheated real estate market with a lot of easy cash and people that are over-mortgaged, what can happen in the U.S., for instance. Also, a lot of easy money, which the Chinese have also followed. So it does, it does reach a certain level where it's got to stop. And what happens then? When the music stops, how many chairs are left? So in the U.S., there weren't tanks and so on, but there was a lot of upset. It really hurt the global economy, and the U.S. was really the engine for consumption. Now, the Chinese are in some ways an engine for for global consumption. So if they now hit a slowdown, and their growth has slowed down massively recently, we have perhaps the the, the ingredients for a global recession, and we also have perhaps the ingredients for something kind of disruptive in China. It's not going to be massively disruptive, but it will slow growth just as zero COVID. I mean, we had said to watch this space a couple of months ago. It seems the dominoes are starting to sort of fall. I mean, on the sort of bright side, they're saying that this real estate debt market doesn't make up as big a proportion as the U.S. real estate market did back in 2008. So that's kind of a plus. But uh, if we're already seeing unrest in certain provinces, I think there's a good chance that it spreads to uh, larger cities and, and provinces within China. So all that said, 
watch this space. And that brings us to the next topic, which is on how the supply chain crisis is now morphing into a food crisis. And not many people are talking about it. So as we mentioned, supply chains may be easing. Supply chain issues may be easing just in time for people to stop buying stuff. Oil prices are constantly on people's minds, but what many seem to take for granted are these rising food prices that we've talked about a little bit on the show before, what the UN and other agencies have sort of talked about ad nauseum. Um, and more importantly, the resulting geopolitical consequences, which are often exacerbated by protectionist moves. So we've seen India and others recently in the news for this. The World Bank, as I said, forecasted after the invasion that global food prices would rise by 20%. And this far outpaces raw materials and things like oil as well. The reduction in supplies of wheat, edible oils, and others caused by the Ukraine war has driven up food prices, which is a scary thought considering that the amount of arable land and raised fertilizer costs are also adding to that problem. So fertilizer costs have risen by 300%, and this is reducing the productivity of existing fertilizer because it's been so expensive for people to get it. They're doing more with less, and in many cases, the productivity goes down. But, and this is, I know Rob would likes this bit, when Russia hasn't been busy deliberately blockading ports, it's been trying to cement a new set of trading agreements. So tell us a little about that, Rob. Yeah, sure. So it talked about potentially an agreement to start shipping Ukrainian wheat out of Odessa. But while the Russians have been making that difficult or taking the grain over to Russia or blackmailing by saying, if we're going to export Ukrainian grain, we have to export Russian grain. So he's basically doubling down on these kinds of trade relationships and particularly with Iran, starting to buy arms from them. Drones is in the news. So he's going to try to double down on this kind of fragmentation of the world trading system. Hmm. And I think the West is up for it. They're, they're increasing sanctions. They're trying to get them out of WTO. Let's see. I don't know how long both sides can hold out, but this is going to simply exacerbate the situation, which is, as you said, higher food prices, which are driven by higher commodity prices. And this is going to lead to, as we said before, debt stress, stress on public budgets in the in the countries where we work, places like Egypt, Somalia, etc., and political tension. I think hearing you talk about that brings to mind for me that what this highlights is that the last, at least from 2016 onwards, we've, a lot of people have talked about trade as, as bad, quote unquote, right? But what we're seeing now is that even though the trade system is sort of fragmenting into larger blocks or a few separated blocks, it's still working out somehow. So Russia is still trying to negotiate trade deals with other countries or like-minded countries on terms that they can all agree on, or a few countries can agree on, I should say. It's still managing to find a way. So to quote Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park, trade uh, finds a way. Thank you. I, Thank you I thought you would like that. that you're like you're like peak Jeff Goldblum material. So let me let me work off that for the next thing, which is we see the dollar is strengthening against the euro. It's strengthening against almost all currencies, perhaps with the exception of the Swiss franc. Thank you, uh, because most of my costs are in Swiss francs. It's also not a coincidence that I became Swiss at the time when this <laughs> is not, not. This is helping Switzerland. So you're welcome. So this has the effect. Almost all commodities are denominated in dollars. So it pushes up the prices of almost everything for almost everybody, except Americans. So in the U.S., this may have the inverse effect of lowering inflation because imported goods look cheaper and commodities look cheaper. So in a way, the U.S. is looking to the appreciation of the dollar. And the Fed is again going to raise interest rates, making the dollar more and more attractive. The U.S. is looking at this to kind of reduce inflation. So the U.S. in a way has a different incentive than the rest of the world. But I don't know how you see this as a sign of strength, sign of weakness. I mean, this is my sarcastic hat on, but can Joe Biden take credit for this if inflation goes down? Because everything else has been his fault. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, no. So thanks, Joe. <laughs> Thanks, Uncle Joe. We talked about this off when we were not recording. I kind of like used to read textbooks 
about the 70s, you know, stagflation and the oil crisis and think, wow, they had it really rough back then. Like things were one thing after another. I don't know how they did it. And I came to the slow realization, like the same thing is happening now. Like we went through 30 years or so of not assuming that this confluence of events wouldn't happen. But I know this is sort of a segue from the currency discussion we're having, but it seems like it's just one after another. We're seeing all of this stemming from, you could say, maybe COVID. So COVID has really pushed a lot of these issues over the edge, right? So whether that's supply chain issues leading to inflation, leading to people not getting stuff, vaccines, et cetera, et cetera. And then the resulting people trying to put their fingers in the spigots, if you will, right? And it has bigger spill-off effects that a lot of times people don't foresee. So what's good for the U.S., in this case, raising interest rates to stave off inflation and hopefully not lead to a recession is not necessarily good for commodity importing countries who get their food from denominated in dollars, as you mentioned. Yeah, I think we don't know yet because stagflation normally includes high unemployment. So in the in the 70s, Carter did not have the tools to manage stagflation, which was high inflation, recession, and unemployment. Right now, what we have is full employment, almost full employment, or past it in the US. So they're not sure if that's going to end, but we do see all these gains we've been talking about in real wages in the US, for instance, all these gains that we've been seeing are being lost now. So at 9% inflation is eating the gains that most people have had in their real wages. So let's see what could go wrong. Well, then that about wraps up the This Week in Local News, Rob's favorite segment. Oh, we're going to rename this to Why France is Not Actually So Bad. <laughs> Get your mustard here. Ian Golden is a professor of globalization and development at the University of Oxford and director of the Oxford Martin Program on Technological and Economic Change, Future of Work and Future Development. My old job. He's also the founding director of the Oxford Martin School. He was chief executive of the Development Bank of Southern Africa, the DBSA, and advised President Nelson Mandela. Also my old job. From 2001-2006, he was vice president of the World Bank and the group's director of policy, and previously was a principal economist at the EBRD. He's done a lot, a lot of stuff. In addition to providing advisory and consulting services to the IMF, UN, EU, OECD, and numerous governments and leading global businesses, Ian has been knighted by the French government, that's why Rob wanted him on, and selected as Global Leader of Tomorrow by the World Economic Forum. You can find Ian on Twitter at Ian underscore Golden or on his website at iangolden.org. So Ian, thanks for joining us on the podcast. We'll, we'll get right into it. So we hear a lot lately about, quote unquote, the end of globalization. We hear this from people we talk to. We hear this in news articles, which there are a lot of lately. We've, we asked our guests this quite a bit lately, but we'd like to know what are, what are your thoughts? I feel that the death of globalization has been much exaggerated. It's rapidly transforming. Many of these structural transformations were already evident before the pandemic. They've been accelerated by the pandemic, which compressed into a period of two years, things that might have evolved over 10 or 20 years. And there are many aspects of globalization which have in fact accelerated, not least digital traffic. Of course, this podcast is one example of that, the acceleration of digital and remote, but also we see it in financial flows, and we certainly see it in health. We, the pandemic itself was a reflection of the underbelly, what I call the butterfly defect of globalization, the spread of systemic risks. Those are accelerating with growing connectivity and complexity, but so too are the responses. The sequencing of the virus over 20,000 times globally within a month is an expression of globalization. So too is the development through global collaboration of vaccines and their distribution, the nation on flights and travel, 
So those that say that globalization is dead or that we're deglobalizing, I think are focusing on certain aspects, often manufacturing trade in certain respects, which supply chain constraints, which are driven by other facts, as well as the transformation of economies, which are becoming more and more service oriented. But there are many aspects of globalization that are accelerating. And the main takeaway that I have is that basically time is being compressed and that the transformation, the structural transformation of the globalization is compressing. The one big thing that we need more globalization of that has been reversing is, of course, political globalization. When we look at the U.S. and its activities globally in terms of global leadership, when we look at the other big powers, when we look at the G20, there's been a massive retreat, which is one of the reasons these problems are festering. And what I hope the pandemic would bring is a recognition that we need to coordinate more and cooperate more to solve global problems. But unfortunately, we're getting the opposite. I, I thought you were going to say we need more globalization of this podcast. I know that too, of course. So we we were, we looked at interest of of the the book that you co-wrote, the hundred maps, which kind of explains trends now and trends into the future to kind of help us, let's say, survive. You know, the the, the coming years. And of course, we hear a lot of negative uh, world is ending kind of things. So uh, of the hundred, which one do you think we, we would find maybe the most surprising and dare I say it upbeat in terms of what came out of that book? Um, the book Terra Incognita, 100 Maps to Survive the Next 100 Years, which I did with Rob Mugger. The maps which I think are most optimistic are the maps which show the enormous progress that's been made in addressing global problems. So we have, for example, maps on the spread of renewables globally, solar panels, wind power, as an example. We have maps which show collaborations between cities on tackling global problems. That's hugely, I think, a sign of progress. We have maps that show the spread of literacy globally, gender awareness and the overcoming of some gender discrimination, the, the spread of human rights, democracy. There are many, many aspects which are reflected in the book overcoming of poverty, which I think are inspirational and shows that we can do it if we have the will. And that's what those maps depict. And many of these things, of course, require some sort of cooperation, collaboration across countries, across political systems and so on. We're sitting in Geneva and talking about, you know, multilateral institutions. We're biased is what he means. As we do this interview. So I think also you've talked a lot about global governance, if we can put it that way, and these kinds of institutions. So are we, are, are these institutions ready to help us collaborate more in these ways? Do we need different ones? How can we realize the potential you're talking about? I think the, the global problem-solving system is unfit for 21st century purpose. Most of these institutions are finding it very difficult to reform. We shouldn't beat up on the institutions, be it the WTO, I think Nkosi is doing an incredible job, or the World Health Organization or the UN. These institutions are owned by us, by the shareholders, particularly the powerful shareholders. Their failures reflect the failures of political leadership in the US, in Europe, in China, and elsewhere. We cannot blame the people who are handcuffed and unable to take actions because they don't have the resources, the people, the mandates, political power to take those actions. But they need urgent reform. All of them need reform. That reform has got to come from the sh key shareholders. And I think we also need to get over the view that it's governments that solve all problems. Governments have a huge responsibility, clearly on trade. They set the rules on, on health. They're the ones that are going to protect us. But what we recognize increasingly 
is that other actors like cities, like in the US, the different states in the US, like California or New York state, for example, like professional bodies, like certain key groups, like pharmaceutical companies have an absolutely key role to play. And so do we all as individuals. And we recognize it as the tremendous changes that have come through people that are mobilizing on various issues. And of course, corporates, not least when it comes to climate change, have a massive responsibility. So we need a much more variable geometry. We need coalitions of some countries, with companies, with communities, with cities. And I think we should apply more of the Pareto rule, which is what 20% of the actors can we put together to solve 80% of a particular problem? Clearly, if it's space debris, it's one sort of group of actors different to dealing with stopping the next pandemic, which requires a much broader coalition. Climate change, about 20% of the actors account for 90% of carbon emissions. And so I think focusing more on what is the problem, who are the actors that the key actors that can go a long way to solving it and how do we mobilize is where we need to be heading in the 21st century. That challenges unanimity. It challenges having turned in two countries as part of all processes. It gets you into the discussions on constituency politics and how you form coalitions. And of course, it, it raises big questions on legitimacy. But I believe these are the questions we should be addressing to evolve the system more rapidly. If we stick with the existing system we have, while key actors basically checked out, then we are basically accepting that we're going to have a system that doesn't evolve fast enough. And we don't have the time for that. I heard you say it's not Geneva's fault. It's not Geneva's <laughs> fault. <laughs> Having listened to all of this, I think I agree with pretty much everything you're saying, but what, what would the trade-offs be that are needed? Because when, if we're talking about, say we take the U.S. as an example, the country where I'm from, if you're telling somebody in certain parts of the country this, I, w I could imagine they're hearing, you know, this person's a globalist, quote unquote, sort of a trade-off would be necessary in the sense that you would need to give up some kind of domestic powers to a supranational body, right? And this triggers alarm bells and all sorts of the wrong people. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge believer in the subsidiary principle that things should be resolved at the lowest possible level. And I want to resolve my problems without asking anyone. My town can, my Oxfordshire, my region can, the country. But we need to recognize that we are in a hyper interdependent complex system, more and more of us connected. And the more we consume and the richer we are, the more what we do affects others. What I eat changes the global temperature. What I wear affects production systems around the world and wherever I fly and so on. And the same of what other people do affects me more and more. And that's the world we in. And that's the cause of the next pandemic whether it's the cause of climate change. And there's no wall high enough that's going to keep out these great challenges that we face. Certainly, a high wall is not going to protect the U.S. from the next pandemic or protect Miami and Los Angeles from being underwater as oceans rise. And, and China's finding that on pandemics, as New Zealand and Australia did before then. What high walls do keep out is the investment, the job opportunities, the skills, the ideas, the technologies, the vaccines, and everything else we need but most of all, the will to cooperate with others to solve our common problems. So what I would say to a community in anywhere in the US or the north of England in an African village is to protect your own future, to look after the prospects for your children, you're going to have to cooperate. The US needs to understand this too, that it has been a primary beneficiary of globalization. The US would not be at the income levels it is today without it. Now, globalization brings benefits, but it also brings inequality and risk. We've seen that with the pandemic, 
We see it with the spillovers in climate change come from higher incomes around the world. That means we need to coordinate with others. To retreat is to make the problems worse. And this is one of the paradoxes of globalization. You need more to make it safer. And that's because you need to work with others to solve the problems it intrinsically creates. You cannot have connected systems without interdependence, but you cannot grow and progress without connected systems. And that's really what we need to internalize. And unfortunately, hyper-integration has accelerated much more rapidly than the management of the risks that are embedded in it. And these include rising inequalities. You know, we would not have had, I believe, President Trump in the White House or Brexit in Britain had it not been for the financial crisis. But the first major example of what happens when you have a complex dynamic system finance, which is unmanaged. And that is despite it being run by very sophisticated central bankers, treasuries and bank, private bankers who paid extraordinary amounts to be risk managers. Um, and of course, finance is also an example of why you don't need lots of countries or players to solve the problem. Only about six countries could cause a, cause a global financial crisis. So you don't need 202 countries. New York state accounts for more carbon emissions and greenhouse gases than 43 countries in sub-Saharan Africa. It also accounts for more antimicrobial antibiotic use, which is another global threat. Focus on where the problems start and you have a big part of the solution to the challenges that globalization faces. And Artie, that, that's a wake-up call to you uh, there in Staten Island. <laughs> Your overuse of uh, hairspray. Of hairspray. <laughs> I feel, I feel triggered. I don't have that particular problem. <laughs> I'm not contributing to that. That's the reason I shaved my head. So that brings us to the, the last part of, of the, if you can call it an interview, at least this part, at least. Our listeners will know what to expect. You may not. So the first question is Oxford, Mississippi or Oxford, England? You have to pick one. <laughs> well, Oxford, England, definitely, except in the middle of winter. I think I'd rather be in Oxford, Mississippi. Well, you, you could you could work remotely. Mm-hmm. And just say I'm in Oxford and no one would know. That exactly. That's ex- no, nobody asked which yeah. country. <laughs> yeah, the background may be a little different. Yeah, exactly. In Geneva, there's a uh, bike theft is kind of a sport. So we say, you know, you haven't really moved here until your bike's been stolen. And my dad went to Oxford in the 50s. He's, he, he thought bikes were basically take one, leave one. It was kind of a bike sharing service before his time. Apparently he didn't quite have that right. It was more like perhaps stealing, oh but uh, you had a bad influence on you. Taking <laughs> it to Geneva, I never knew that. This was the honest people, but yeah, bike, bike theft is a problem. I've had a couple of bikes stolen. It's not nice. So we aren't immune to that, but I hadn't realized this was basically a problem that come from Switzerland. Yeah. Rob is, <laughs> Rob is patient zero. Yeah, exactly. So the last one we got for you, kebab is like the national food of, of Geneva. So if you know, if you know Geneva, what's your favorite kebab here? It's probably a buffet de Beirut. But well, I've come, I've become vegan, which is <laughs> a problem. I used to love kebab. I used to go there and there's, there's a great kebab place on the, on the high streets here. But yeah, I haven't found a vegan kebab yet. But what I've got into, which is really great is creperies. And mm-hmm. there's some very good vegan galette, a creperie that's just opened here. And it gives me an opportunity to practice my French as well, which is very necessary. We were speaking a lot about politics. <laughs> so yeah. Crepe, vegan crepes is what I recommend. If anyone comes to Oxford, contact me. I'll tell you where they are. Okay. We've got a clearinghouse. Fantastic. <laughs> well, I know we're, we're just about to come to the end of the time you had for us, Ian. If people want to learn more about the work you're doing, where should they go? It's great being on your podcast. Thank you. Ian Golden, one word. That's G-O-L-D-I-N-I-A-N, G-O-L-D-I-N dot org.
is where to go. And you can contact me through that website too. Yeah, speaking of inflation, you know what's going to be really expensive? Fixing my broken phone. Not if you had Case Folklore. What's Case Folklore? So Case Folklore is a free customizable case that you can buy for your phone and not break it like you do, Rob. So listeners out there, don't be like Rob and go pick up a customized case by checking out their Instagram page at Case Folklore and using the promo code SPLAINING at checkout. So that brings us to the uh, segment where we bring in our correspondent, Michelle, to tell us about the end of Globalization Watch. So, Michelle, is globalization finally over? This week, at least. So, no, globalization is not over. In fact, it might be entirely propped up by celebrities and their private jets. It's summer and we're all kind of on vacation right now, right? Like, oot! Nothing pressing is going on, at least, and nothing's going to happen this week. So just to kill time, I've been following this account on Twitter called at CelebJets. And it's pretty simple. It just tells you what celebrity used their jet to fly somewhere, the travel time, and of course, the carbon footprint of that flight. That's how I know that Oprah is in Hawaii right now. Taylor Swift is in New York. She went there from Nashville. And for some reason, country music star Shinmark, Kenny Chesney, is just flying all over the place. I don't know if he's on tour. I don't know what he's doing, but he's literally flying like three times a day. So Come on, Kenny, it's enough. Kenny Chesney feels like every country's music singer's name. I feel like Kenny Chesney, just to be on brand, should use a pickup truck to travel. I'm going to have to Google this because I don't believe that's a real person. Kenny Chesney sounds like somebody from the, you know, Matrix. I had to Google him, I have to say. And to begin with, there's nothing like living through climate change and heat waves while watching Kim Kardashian fly from some place to another and use 60 tons of CO2 while the average person uses about seven tons a year. That was season three, <laughs> keeping up, right? That was like one episode. It was half an episode. Kylie Jenner just took her jet for 10 minutes of flight for a day trip basically to Palm Springs. And I mean, guys, like, come on, how long does it take to drive to Palm Springs compared to like driving to the airport and taking your jet and going there and then driving to wherever you have to go? I feel like we have to stop at some point. I don't know if it's the heat wave, but I'm really pissed off at Kylie Jenner and everybody else who's using these jets. You know, if it was 100 degrees Fahrenheit or 40 degrees Celsius where I am, which it is, it was, I would probably take a jet 10 minutes to the grocery store. Well, if, I think I could avoid. I think hot. I think Kylie Jenner was just flying to marry Ben Affleck. <laughs> no, 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 that was Jennifer J Lo. Oh, J Lo. You know she's your age, Rob. I think you're right. On the other hand, if the world's going to end, why not just grab your jet, Yolo, and fly to like the local convenience store or New Zealand? I feel like That's it's fine. so much of a hassle. It's true. Like you still have to drive to the airport, and then you have to get out of your car, get into a jet. Correction. For 10 minutes? Correction. You have to have somebody drive you to the Thank airport. Yes, very much. Have somebody open the door for you. And you can run your billion-dollar lipstick company. And then literally only walk from AC to that three-minute walk to the plane, which is also on AC. So sounds so bad. I feel like I, 10 I, minutes flights is a bit much. What I'm trying to say is, Kylie, come on the Stop. podcast. Exactly. Ex explain your trips, Kylie. Yeah, yeah. She bought three forests to compensate. That brings us to the next segment this week in local news. You wouldn't believe this was true unless you lived in Geneva or really anywhere else. Like France. Could be France. As you said, acquired with my wife a half share in a French house. I thought it was a chateau. It's a chateau, as many call it, a chateau. Chateau or, de Skidmark. Which I guess means building. In this case, we have from the actual, the same part of France, we have a climate change update, which is a local a lady who is called Emily has a nice family, two young boys. They have a grove of banana trees that's growing there. They feel like this could be a climate thing. 
And they've decided to take careful care of these bananas. They've got two groves of them. They put, of course, hay on top of them, straw on top of them during the winter. This is how you winter bananas. Winterizing a car. And, and they're, they're working their way up. I know you're wondering, are they delicious? They're working their way up to tasting them. They have not really had the courage. I guess, you know, you find a banana in your backyard in France, you're like, hmm. Should there, you know, these groves multiply, we may be in a situation where the trade in bananas becomes more of a local trade. You could have locally grown bananas in your Echo banana stand. The Harry Belafonte paradox, as they call it in the trade game. <laughs> Let me transition to a more of a summer sharing economy issue. Apparently, there are now apps for pool sharing. So you can buy a couple of hours of somebody's pool. You can even add using their bathroom. I guess that's about 15 bucks an hour. I guess it comes with toilet paper. I don't know. You can throw in a grill and you can rent their kids as well. <laughs> Tell me you're a predator without telling me you're a predator. The people, you know how they, to catch a predator, is they find out who's actually offering to buy these pools for an hour or two. I think we need to bring Michelle in here. Is it creepy or is this just an incredibly brilliant use of an underused asset? Oh my God. I would rent a pool tomorrow for like 10 minutes just to jump inside of a pool. And hold a lake. You've got Lac de Genève. <laughs> no, have you been Jeez, to Bande Bakie lately? They're about to implement surge pricing at Bande Bakie, and I feel like that's worrisome. You've got the rest of the lake. I'm just wondering about the filter, because there's no filter at Bande There's also one super tan guy who walks around in a banana hammock. Yeah. You know the guy I'm talking about. I do. He's always there. Yeah. We actually call him Balls. <laughs> and I think one final story, which we do have to keep following, the high drama regarding trees. You remember that the rogue elements had planted a few trees? You remember the local officials came out saying the planters should come forward. They're not going to get punished. They just want to know who did it. Just want to know. Now it's escalated. One of the trees has been deraciné, has been pulled out of the ground, and local activists came out and spray-painted its ghost on the ground to show the death of the tree. Also, I like this threat. They're threatening to set up to give everybody a package called a citizen planter kit so you can get out there and vegetalize the city. We had Inu Manak on a couple episodes ago, a couple of weeks ago, and she actually did the best advert for Geneva I've heard in a while. Yeah. And I think this story is probably the worst, like why you should not come to Geneva. <laughs> I think what's important is that the police did come to this tree ghost painting ceremony. Did they draw a picture of Patrick Swayze too? <laughs> <laughs> but it was de-escalated. Roadhouse. Yeah. So... We don't know what the next what the next blow could be, but come out and get your citizen planter kit. Let me guess, trees will be involved in the next episode at some point. <laughs> so everybody, keep your eye on the Geneva News. Well, folks, that about wraps up episode 35, brought to you by the element Romine, Benefer, French Mustard, and of course, Geneva's Rogue Tree Planters. We also want to thank our guest, Ian Golden, once again for joining us, as well as our executive producer and White House correspondent, Michelle Holguin, and Valentina Saponara for helping and produce this episode. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already. Make sure you catch our next episode coming out very soon in a couple of weeks. And you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And as I say every episode, we're anywhere you can get your anywhere podcast. You can get your podcast. Don't forget to leave us also a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Rob does read all of them, so be gentle. You can also follow us on Twitter at Tradesplaining or Instagram at Trade.Splaining. Or email us your questions, comments the old-fashioned way at Trade.Splaining at gmail.com. Once again, that's Trade.Splaining at gmail.com. And remember, folks, listen, listen responsibly. responsibly.